a beloved passage of Scripture that many know. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. Many people quote this passage, at least the first few verses of it, many times not connected with verse 7, fearing the Lord and departing from evil. But this passage is a beloved passage, and it brings comfort to a lot of folks. It reminds us to trust in God. And this was a passage that my dad had me memorize when I was maybe eight years old. And it's a passage that I think is fundamental to our lives as Christians, to trust in God, to let Him lead our lives. This morning, as we celebrate with many in the world today, I want us to think about how we trust God. What does it mean to trust God in our lives as Christians? And I want us this morning to think about that by looking at each of the stitches in this poem or in these verses and look at how this played out in the birth of Christ. So let's think about this first phrase, this first stitch, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into your own understanding. Think about the level of trust that existed for those folks in the Jewish community who were waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the day that the king would be born who would restore the kingdom of David. Certainly it would have been very easy to be dissuaded and uh, to be led away, to be distracted by various things that happened over time. And yet there were some who trusted in God to fulfill his promise. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 2. And as you turn to Luke chapter 2, keep in mind that Luke chapter 2 gives us, I think, the early days of Christ spread out over many weeks. But notice what happens. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25 it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, when the parents brought him in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, <coughs> excuse me, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel his father and mother, were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, the child is appointed for, for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that 
thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This isn't necessarily a story that we associate with the very day of Jesus' birth. And, of course, under the law, this would have taken, uh, taken place several days after Jesus' birth. But here come Jesus' parents. And they come into the temple to present Jesus as was required by the law and to offer sacrifice as was required by the law. And they get to the temple and here comes this old man, Simeon. And Simeon had been told, we don't know any other place in Scripture, but Luke tells us here that he had been told uh, through prophecy, I suppose, uh, that he would not die until the Messiah came, until he saw the Messiah. Now, I suppose if you're Simeon, you could have done any number of things with your life. But you see, Simeon demonstrates what it is to trust in the Lord and not lean on his own understanding. Because Simeon, all of his life, waited for this moment. He was trusting in God, trusting that God was going to show him the Messiah. And so here's Jesus. And Simeon comes and he praises Jesus. And then he tells Mary some rather unpleasant things, really, when you look at what he says to her. And at that very moment, here comes this woman, described to us as being a prophetess. And she comes and she looks at the baby Jesus. This woman who has to be in her 90s because she was married at it during her youth and lived with her husband for seven years and then all these decades later, living as a widow, coming to the temple, constantly serving God and praising God. And she goes out and she tells people about Christ after she sees him. They trusted in God. When you think about the amount of time that would have transpired in the lives of Simeon and Anna, it would have been very easy to get discouraged. It would have been very easy to get distracted by other things and just let those things go. Well, that's off in the distance. That's off in the, in the, in the future. And there's not a lot told to us about the lives of Anna and Simeon. So we can't be certain of what their life was like, but you certainly get the idea from the text that they were faithful to God. And it's hardest for us to be faithful and trust God when you have day one and all its troubles, and day two and all its troubles, and day three and day four and week and month and year after year after year, and things still don't turn out the way we expect them to turn out it's very easy to begin not trusting God 
and then to lean on our own understanding. And when we look at Scripture, we see a number of stories in Scripture that depict people who are described and, and people that we hold up on pedestals as being heroes of faith, and yet they showed great lack of faith in some ways. They showed some great lack of trust in God. They showed some great examples of leaning on their own understandings. Just think about it. Abraham has a vision from God, and God says, look, I'm going to take you to this land that's not yours. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to have children. You're going to have so many offspring that you can't count them. It's going to be like trying to count the stars or, or trying to count the, the sand on the seashore. Did Abraham trust God? I suspect in many ways that he did, but what does he do? Well, first we have his little incident with Hagar. After about 10 years or so, Genesis chapter 15, Sarah comes to Abraham and she says, look, things aren't working out the way we thought they would. Why don't you go ahead and use my handmaid as a surrogate? Before you have the medical technology to do that. Understand what I'm saying? They leaned on their own understanding. Now we need to remember that the culture and standards of the day suggested that if you're a wealthy person like Abraham would have been considered wealthy, you had two options according to the status quo, according to the social standards of the day. Number one is you just get rid of that wife and get another one. That's the first option. The second option is, is that you keep that wife, but you use a handmaiden, kind of like Sarah and Abraham did, to act as a surrogate so that you can have children, so that you can have an heir. You see, that's leaning on your understanding because you look around and you say, well, you know what? This is no big deal. This is how society says we ought to do it. And you rationalize in your mind and you begin to think, you know what, it's okay if I do it this way. Maybe this is what God wanted me to do. That's leaning on your understanding. And Abraham did that. Abraham certainly wasn't the only one that did that. We can look at the lives of Isaac. We can look at the lives of Jacob. We can look at the lives of, uh, of David and, and Solomon. We can see all sorts of examples of, of great men of faith who took things into their own hands and didn't trust God. So we need to be careful that we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our understanding. With all of our heart, every moment, every ounce of our being, we ought to trust God. I don't know how he's going to make this happen. I don't know when he's going to make this happen, but I can trust that God fulfills his promises and therefore I'm going to remain loyal to God. We saw it with Hannah. We saw it with Samuel. The next little text tells us that we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our understanding. In all our ways we acknowledge Him and He shall direct our paths. What does it mean to acknowledge God in all our ways? 
but in every aspect of our lives to follow God and to lean on God and to do what he wants us to do, to think about and to dwell on God and, and to dwell on what it is that he would like us to do. And again, as we think about the story of Jesus' birth, we can see that happening. Again, as we look in Luke, we see that we have these shepherds that encounter the angels. And the angels come and they tell these shepherds in Luke chapter 2, look, there's going to be a child that's born and, and, and he's going to bring peace on earth and all these great things. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And the angels go to Bethlehem just like they're told. Well, they will find this baby who's going to be king. And so they go there, and they go to Bethlehem. They follow God. But then notice verse 17, Luke chapter 2. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the Christ. And all who heard it wondered at the things which they were told to them by the shepherds. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. They acknowledged God. They acknowledged the power of God. But you see, they let that guide their steps. And that they told others the good news about Jesus. They simply didn't leave it there in the field. They simply didn't go and visit the baby and say, well, this is great. I love seeing babies in barns. It's time for me to get my En Gettys photography and have a little baby in a manger. No, they didn't do that. They shared with others the good news about Christ. But he guided their steps as they acknowledged him. But then look in Matthew's account also. In chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Isn't it interesting how Joseph is a godly man and he thinks that his fiancée has been stepping out, so to speak, and then he sees the angel and the angel says, no, this is from God. But you see, before Joseph was going to do anything, he was going to put her away quietly, as opposed to doing what he by rights could have done, which under the, the Old Testament law meant he could have had her killed and made a public display of her. But he loved Mary, I think, and he had compassion, so he doesn't do that. But I want you to notice how they acknowledged God in their lives, and he directed their steps. Look at verse 13, Matthew chapter 2. Now when the angel had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I will call my son. Referring to Hosea chapter 9. But you see, 
Joseph gets the message from God. Look, Herod's going to kill this child. I suppose if God sends a message to him and he says, a king is going to kill your child or is seeking to kill your child, that would be pretty easy for me to follow that command. I don't know. I'll move. But you see, he acknowledged God. And that's a pretty easy one for us to grasp in our minds and see the example and follow that. But what about other times in our lives? What does it mean to acknowledge God in our lives? Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart, O my God, so that I may not sin against you. That's acknowledging God in my life. What does it mean to hide the word of God in your heart? But to dwell on it, to be in it, to think about it, and to become so second place for you in your life that it protects you from sinning. That's what the psalmist says. That's what David says there in Psalm 119, verse 11. I've hidden your word so that I may not sin against you. I have a desire, God, to be right with you. I have a desire, God, to do what you want me to do. And so to protect me and to make sure that I do that, I have hidden your word in my heart. Meaning I'm consumed by it, and it has a special place in my heart. That's what it means to acknowledge God in all your ways. Still in Psalm 119, look at verse 105. Of course, we know this psalm very well. We know this portion of Psalm 119 very well. It's very popular. Uh, we sang the song. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Oh, accept the free will offering of my mouth, O Lord. Teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. What is Solomon or David saying here? Your word is a light. When we think about combining this with Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 6, acknowledge him in all your ways and he shall direct your paths. How does that work? When I acknowledge God and I know his word, I make my decisions based upon his word, what I know will be pleasing to his word, and doing that provides a light to my feet. It helps me know where to go, what I ought to do. And certainly we see Joseph doing that in Matthew chapter 2 when God says, you need to get out of this place. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord apart from evil. What does it mean to be wise in our own eyes? 
Being wise in our own eyes means that we begin to decide for ourselves what we ought to do. We begin to make those decisions uh, for ourselves and we start to forget about God. And what's ironic to me is we look at Proverbs. Proverbs was written by Solomon. And he says at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, these things I've written to you, my son, so that you can... And he spends the next 10 chapters talking about how wisdom will benefit his son who will be the king of Israel. <laughs> what does Solomon do? He makes all these contracts with other kings, subordinate kings in other countries, other lands, so that he has over a thousand concubines and wives. It's not that he was a prolific dater. Uh, he wasn't on Match.com or uh, eHarmony or any of those things, uh, trying to find wives and spouses and that sort of thing. But the custom of the day was when you make a contract, the lesser king gives brides so as to seal the contract, gives concubines to seal the contract. And I'm sure in Solomon's mind he was thinking, you know what, this is no big deal. I'm not going to fall for any of that. But scripture tells us that Solomon loved many women. And he gave them temples and shrines for their gods. And they led his heart away from God. Sometimes we can be wise in our own eyes and we begin to forget God, and that's when we start to stray, stray from God. We begin to think, you know what, I can figure this out on my own, and I can, I can do this. And it's kind of the same thing that we've already seen here in Proverbs chapter 3. But again, think about Abraham. Not once... But twice, Genesis chapter 12, and then with Pharaoh, and a little bit later on in Genesis with Ahimelech, Abraham says, you know what, Sarah? These people are going to think you're really good looking. Now, gentlemen, there's nothing wrong with telling your wife that other people are going to think she's good looking. But he goes one step further, doesn't he? And he says, I, I know that they're going to think that you are so good looking that they're going to want to take you for their own wife. And when they find out that we're married, they're going to kill me. So let's just tell them that you're my sister, because that's kind of true, because you're my half-sister. But that way, they'll not kill me, and everything will be okay. I'm not sure what the implications are there for Sarah, or how her side of the conversation went in, that story, in those stories. But... One way or the other, she goes along with it. And you know what happens in both cases. God says to Pharaoh, or he says to Abimelech, look, you better give this man his wife back or things aren't going to be good for you. And you would think that Abraham would have told that story to his son so that his son wouldn't make the mistake, but Isaac does the exact same thing. Sometimes we think we're wise. 
and we begin to forget about God. And again, when we look at the story of Jesus' birth, don't we see that in Matthew chapter 2? When Herod, who is supposedly Jewish, but really he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau who had converted to Judaism, and therefore he's known as the king of the Jews. But when Herod finds out that, look, there's this new king in Israel, he says, you know what, I think I'm going to be wise, and I'll just get rid of that king before he has a chance to become king. Look at chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found it, report to me, so that I too may, be co may come and worship. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them uh, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then look at verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country another way. Herod thought that he was pretty wise. He wanted to be king of Israel. He wanted to retain that power and that authority. And he was a man that wasn't afraid to do whatever he needed to do to keep it. Killing, killing his favorite wife and some of his own sons. He was a bloodthirsty man that wanted to hang on to his power and authority. He would do anything to, to do it. He was a puppet king of, of Caesar. He was good friends with some of the Caesars. But he was a bloodthirsty man. And he thought that he would be wise by telling these magi, you guys just go and worship, and when you get done, go ahead and come back so I can come and worship too. It's not going to work out for Herod the way that he thought. I'll just kill all the children in that little town of Bethlehem from two years old and down, or at least the boys, so I can make sure that I don't have a, a usurper and someone who's going to take the kingdom away from me. And sometimes we do the same thing with God. We think to ourselves, you know, if I just do things my way, if I just pursue this course of action, I can control the outcome. And I can control the way things go. And so we forget to be wise, or we forget to follow God and trust in the Lord. Finally, the last little stitch. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We don't like to think about fearing God. We live in a culture and a time which we're supposed to think about God as love. And that's biblical. God is love. But we forget to fear God. Oh, that just means to have great respect for God. Well, that's part of it. But the word really does mean fear. Not fear in the sense that I'm going to be afraid that God's a mean, cruel guy, that he's trying to constantly crush me, he's trying to constantly create problems for my life, he's trying to constantly create pain for me. Not that kind of fear, but a fear that says this is someone powerful. This is someone who is so good, who is so great, that there's no way I could stand 
against him. And I have to acknowledge God in his awesomeness. God in his power. God in his moral goodness. And there's no way I can stand before God. Let me tick off some of the things that, that God means for my life. He's my creator. He created me. I can't even make toast that doesn't burn. Right? He made the entire universe and made it so complex that even in the minutiae, things fit together nicely. And he keeps all that running the way it should go. And he provides me with everything that I need. I mean, God is awesome. But when I think about the goodness of God and how morally good God is, I can't even compare to that. I can't make it one day without sinning and slipping up. Have you ever been with someone who just seems to be so good all the time? And you just feel so pale in comparison to that individual? With God, it's a million times more than that. And so we have this fear of God. What happens when we don't have that fear of God? We begin to make decisions contrary to God. Because we, we, we begin to not really be concerned about what God thinks or, or what God's going to do. You know, it is a healthy thing to have fear of the police, of what they can do. It, it is a healthy thing to have fear of people in authority who can do things to us if we don't comply. Right? But sometimes we can treat God like a teenage son who's not really concerned about what dad's going to do or what mom's going to do and just act like a spoiled brat. But fear recognizes this is who God is and I need to follow him. Now, again, when we look at the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2, we see Joseph, again, I believe, acting with fear. Chapter 2, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Do you see what Joseph does there? Twice God says, here's what I want you to do. Now, did Joseph get up and say, huh? things are so good in Egypt. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of wealth. Things are going good here. I've got my own family now. I've got my own job. 
We're situated. I don't want to leave now. No. Joseph made plans to go back to Israel. But then he's warned in, an, in a dream by an angel. He says, not only do I want you to go back to Israel, but I want you to go to this little tiny spit hole on the ground called Nazareth. That nobody for centuries has ever heard of. And for centuries later are going to have a hard time finding. And when they find it, they're going to find out that it was just a puny little nothing place. But it's in the region of Galilee. Does Joseph say, oh, why Nazareth? No. He gets up and he goes. Because he has a fear, I suspect, of God. Following God. Being obedient to God. It makes a nice little end, beginning and end to understanding of Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord. Fear the Lord. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. You see, when I trust God and I fear God, I am going to depart from evil. For Joseph, the evil was very real in the sense that it helped him avoid the sword of Herod. But it also helped him avoid the evil of not following God in his life and running against God's will. There was a reason that the Messiah had to live in Nazareth of Galilee. Because of out of Galilee will come a great light. Fulfilling Isaiah chapters 9 and 11. Fulfilling the idea that the Messiah would be called the branch. In the book of Ezekiel. The branch. And this idea of the Nazarene is a play on words to that idea in the Hebrew language of the branch. If Joseph doesn't fear God and do what he says, he's running against God's plan. Sometimes as we look at our lives, it's easy for us to begin to not trust God. Or even if in our hearts and in our minds we say, I trust God, I love God, I want to follow God. Sometimes it's easy for us to do things that circumvent God's will. And we go our own way. We think to ourselves, I, I can do it my own way and it's going to work out okay. But we forget that God has promised to take care of us. And we can trust Him. Even if it takes years and years and years, God fulfills His promise according to His plan. And God's going to take care of us along the way. We can know that when we follow God's word, he is going to protect us because his word is there not as a stumbling block, not as a shackle, but as a way to guide our feet in the way we ought to go. 
And if we fear God and we follow that word, we know it's going to keep us from doing things that are evil or doing things that are wrong or doing things that are going to get us in trouble. When we look at the story of Jesus' birth, we see this story unfolding because there are men and women who trust God, acknowledge Him, and fear the Lord. And because of that, the Messiah is born and raised and able to complete God's plan of dying on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven, so that someday we get to go home and spend an eternity with Him. If you're here this morning and you need to trust God with all of your heart, you need the prayers of the church to encourage you and to help you as you seek to acknowledge Him in all your ways, whatever your need, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.